Well, here we are. We are uh, second show in. Um, uh, I'm I'm doing the honors this time of uh, of starting us off. Um, I'm Daniel G. I'm a partner at Sheridan's, if you guys didn't know, and I'm um, joined by Omar Chaudhry, who is Chief Intelligence Officer at 21st Club. Um, Omar speaks the sense. I add a little bit of law in if necessary. And um, today what we're going to be doing is um, uh, talking about probably one of the most topical issues around at the moment, which is, um, I guess, generally football reform, but in particular, um, EFL um, Blue Sky Thinking, which is they're the three leagues below um, the Premier League. And this is almost as a result of a, a fantastic piece that Omar and one of his colleagues, Ben Marlow, has written in Sport Business over the last um, couple of weeks, I think, that I read with real interest over the weekend. And actually, incredible, I say actually like it was a surprise, but I actually really, really enjoyed because it wasn't the usual type of stereotypical thinking. It was really some blue sky thinking based on some real, you know, detailed um, analytical um, critiques, really. So what I thought we'd try and do is, with with obviously Omar's help, paint that picture and then talk about a few um, um, concepts that you um, sort of uncovered and wanted to sort of distill. So um, Omar, if maybe we try and just set set things up, which was I, my understanding of your piece really was to try and firstly, I guess, work out why clubs were in such an insecure financial footing in the first place based on some revenue figures and then understand why clubs keep falling into the same traps of overspending, et cetera, and then thinking about potential solutions to address those issues. You talked about media rights, um, spending restrictions, the purpose of a club and, and competition format. So obviously we won't go there just quite yet, but if you want to give us a bit of context, that would be, that'd be great. Yeah, so I mean, we've all we've all obviously seen some of the challenges that the EFL clubs have faced. There's, there's reports almost every day at the moment around you know, clubs hitting the wall or nearly hitting the wall. We also obviously saw Macclesfield um, go out of business in September. Uh, Berry, you know, pre-COVID went out. And I think there's there's a lovely line that my colleague Ben wrote in the piece, which was, um, you know, clubs were already struggling and um, COVID was the tide that went out and, and showed that a lot of the clubs were already swimming naked. And I think that that has certainly been the case. And I think the, the number one thing that, that you note, I guess, is just the dependency on on match day income that, that a lot of these clubs have. So, you know, we've all been fortunate where we've been able to be at home in lockdown since June and been able to watch football. Um, but that football's obviously been by and large, you know, elite football, Premier League and, and Champions League football. The you know EFL clubs don't earn a lot through their through their broadcast money. They earn a big chunk of their revenues through match day money. Um, through ticket sales and, and people buying corporate boxes and, and buying food and drink on the day. Uh, so I think League Two clubs, you know, it's up, up over 50% for a lot of them, um, which <laughs> anyone running a business, you lose 50% of income, you know, overnight, then you, you're going to run into trouble. So it, it was crazy. Omar. If I can just briefly say, yeah. I've just got the chart up. I, maybe we'll try and share it afterwards. And this isn't me knowing, this is me looking at the the, the article at the same time, which was, Sort of match day went from 13% to the Premier League up until 53% for, for League Two, mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously incredible. That's one of the things you, you, you do in the piece, which is sort of compare lots of different things together. But it's incredible to think that, you know, it is match day is so disproportionately important for the lower league clubs. Yeah, it's, 
it's everything really and uh you know, perversely in the premier league it's it's actually the big clubs who are most hit by by the by the lack of match day but um yeah. but yeah in, in the efl it, it's so noticeable when these clubs have overall revenues you know around two to kind of six million if we talk about the tiers three and four league one league two um but but the the kind of most noticeable thing is that these clubs obviously aren't just struggling with with match day revenue there is a bit of a rat race really in in the lower leagues because the prize at the top is so big so an average premier league club has a revenue of, of 250 million obviously the big six you know typically in excess of of 400 million bottom half premier league 150 odd odd million um and so even even a league one club when we think about all the clubs that have been in the premier league over the last you know 10 15 years a lot of them have been in in the lower leagues and league one league two so Swansea immediately comes to mind, Hull, uh, Bournemouth, Norwich, Southampton, you know, you can reel them off. So it's not unrealistic. That's one of the great things about the English football pyramid is that you can be a, a League One, League Two club and have real dreams of, of reaching reaching the top flight. Whereas often if you look at Spain, for example, the third tier there, Segunda B, is regional and it's very flat structure. And a lot of those clubs, it's just very unlikely for them to reach reach the promised land so you've got this kind of real incentive to to do whatever you can to reach reach that top level um, as an EFL club and if we then sort of couch it in terms of then almost which is one of the headlines that the, the piece that you wrote which is sort of why are we here you know a, a statistic from the you know there's a great guy um Kieran Maguire on um on Twitter and then also Swiss Ramble as well that does some great financial figures one of those figures that I saw a while back from um, Swiss Ramble was there were clubs in the championship over the last few years whose wage to turnover ratio was almost at 200%, which um, is not sustainable in any way, shape or form. And that's what almost, you know, your piece talks about, which is almost the misaligned incentives to, to get promotion, to reach the promised land. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you know, we all know that better footballers cost more money. So you're going to pay them more wages, you're going to pay the transfer fees and you're going to get them in. And, and that, well, that's what drives that statistic. The trouble is not that number per se. It's the fact that everyone's doing it because everyone's got the incentive to overspend. So, you know, the, the leagues have tried to um, implement, you know, cost control measures and, and we'll get onto that. Um, but the fact is when, you know, everyone has got the same prize and, and there is, um, you know, the most obvious lever that you can pull is to just spend more money. What you end up having is revenues not growing, but costs just growing year on year. And as a result of that, you see um, either what may some people may say is completely rational spending or what some people may say is completely irrational spending. The rational approach, I guess, would be well, we need to get to the Premier League at all costs or we need to get to the Premier League at all costs and we're willing to um, either breach regulations um, to spend unsustainably um, and to take that business gamble because it will effectively be you know, worthwhile to a degree. And that's why, depending on if there's anything you want to say there, that's why we saw over the summer, for example, um, salary caps being imposed at League One and League Two, and um, the implications, the, the spending implications for that, I guess. Yeah. So, so on the other point, the it's it is probably the most rational thing to do to break the 
break the law as a championship club in particular, because if you have 300% wages to turnover, you, you're very likely to be promoted because you're obviously invested. You know, if you've invested it well, you've invested in good players. So you get promoted and then you leave the, the regulatory environment of the EFL and you're in the Premier League. And so, you know, we have seen clubs do that. And, and you know, the, again, the issue isn't just one club doing it, it's that all the clubs see that incentive and, and all do it. Um, so yeah, the salary, the salary cap measure is is an interesting one. We had um, SCMP, I think it was um, before before this season, which was spending linked to revenue. Uh, so kind of like a soft cap. Yeah. I think uh, you probably know better than me, Dan. But the I think the big challenge of it was just monitoring up on an ongoing basis because you didn't know what a club's revenue was going to be. Um, they could therefore spend and spend and spend, and therefore not necessarily you wouldn't necessarily know until the end of the season, until it was too late where, where a club was at. Uh, and so that's why they've brought in this hard cap. And also, um, it seems from the reports, though, from the press release, and I, I just recently did a, um, a blog on it that I'll put in the, um, in the, the messages afterwards, is that um, there seems to be a, a more dynamic reporting mechanism for um, salary caps at League One and League Two. So if, just for um, summary's sake, um, the salary caps that have been posed are hard caps of two and a half million and one and a half million, respectively, for League One and League Two. Um, the, the the way that it will effectively be enforced is that I believe if you spend up to five percent over those amounts, um, there will be some type of luxury tax um, capability or mechanism built in. But anything over that um, will lead to you know substantive disciplinary measures and regulatory breaches, etc. And and the definition of what actually is salary is pretty broad. So one of the pieces that you that want a couple of the reasons that you write in your piece is actually about why, potentially at least anyway, um, a hard cap because it just is a hard number rather than it relating to, for example, a percentage of um, turnover or otherwise um, might be seen by some as being pretty restrictive. Yeah, exactly. I think. Um... The, the issue with a hard cap is that it potentially limits an incentive to grow revenues, which which ultimately clubs should be incentivized to to grow their revenues, grow their club, grow sustainably, and rise the leagues through that mechanism. Uh, but when you impose a hard cap, then you know a, a, a kind of club towards the bottom end of League Two can spend as much as a as a club towards the top end of of League Two, even though they might be wildly different. So the classic case at the moment is Sunderland, you know, huge club, normal circumstances would have. A lot bigger revenues than than a club, you know, towards the bottom end of uh, of League One, uh, and therefore, why why should they be restricted when they're actually capable of of spending a, a sustainable amount at a certain revenue level? So it comes back this kind of a governance piece, really, but it comes back to kind of better reporting and tracking of spending and linking that to revenues. And we should be able to do that, frankly, in in this day and age. Like we've got you know access to. To technology and tools you know we you know 21st we've developed some that enable enable clubs to kind of track spending in in live so um really i i don't think there is any excuse not to have not to have that that soft uh, soft cap and then two things i was just thinking about there because i think something to look out for is it's been reported that the championship clubs sooner rather than later mm -hmm. might well be implementing some type of hard cap um it sounded like from the um from some of the reporting that um, it just couldn't be agreed what that number potentially would be if it's in the low 
teen, uh, the the high teens rather, or anything more, um, anything more by way of numbers, and then how that relates to interaction with the Premier League, for example, by way of relegation and promotion. There is the short, um, the the profitability and sustainability regulations, which are currently in place between the Premier League and the Championship, and different amounts for when you move um, in between um, those leagues. So I think that's that's something to um, definitely be thinking about and considering. Um, I, I think also, as you mentioned in the piece, that there's been there's been a significant number of clubs. I guess if it's the right way of saying gaming the system, which is looking for the potential loopholes. Um, uh, you know, selling Stadia um, to be able to raise revenue to effectively break even or not fall foul of the particular spending regulations. So um, there's, there's certainly a query over whatever type of regulatory cost control landscape um, is in force or enforced, that there was always going to be those, um, those issues. Now, the thing that you um, quite interestingly state in the piece talks about how then do you realign incentives and how do you do things potentially differently um, in order to you know think about the root causes of things rather than the consequences and the symptoms and this is I think where you get into the really interesting uh, interesting points about some of the things from a from a blue sky thinking perspective yeah exactly I think um, we need to th th there's a few few things to think about here so there's the Firstly, can we grow championship value uh, or EFL value in general? And I think the answer to that is yes. Um, you know, the EFL has a huge amount of value. You think about the clubs that have been in the EFL over the last kind of 10 years, um, you know, Leeds European Cup winners, Aston Villa European Cup winners, Nottingham Forest European Cup winners, Blackburn Rovers Premier League winners. You know, you've got a lot of big clubs in there that people want to watch, um, you know, domestically and, and internationally. Uh, and so I think there's a feeling that the, the rights are probably slightly undervalued for the EFL uh, and therefore the clubs aren't necessarily realising the value um, that they deserve. So that, that's the kind of conversation to be had around how you can better kind of realise realize those rights um, and, and realise the value in, in the league. And then there's, then there's kind of what, what is the purpose of EFL football? And, and particularly here, I think we should probably separate out championship from League One, League Two. Um, because as you get into League One, League Two, you're getting into clubs that don't have the global pool to the same degree, don't have European Cups or Premier League titles. They've got a slightly more kind of local local feel to them. And, and I think there's, there's this kind of culture within English football, which is a good thing, um, about, you know, it's all about winning. It's all about going to the next tier and so on. And I think ultimately... Unfortunately, for better or worse, that's not a healthy system for English football at the moment because it leads to unsustainable spending. So can can we get clubs to rethink the, what they exist for? And the analogy, I think it made it into the piece, but the analogy I like to use is that, you know, when you, when you start up a restaurant around some kind of shoddy corner, you know, not in, not in the nicest part of town, your food's authentic, you know, it's made with love. You've got the waiter who's the chef, who's the kind of dad, and, and, and everyone's kind of got this family environment. And you go there and you go to that restaurant, you have an unbelievable experience. The food is great and so on. But the, that restaurant doesn't aspire to be the next noble, the next Michelin star. It just it aspires to be what it is. Uh, and that, I think we call it kind of purveying the authentic football experience. And I think there's, 
you know, if we if we talk about there's a lot of disillusionment with modern football and the top end of the game, then why can't the EFL really tap into that that group of disillusioned fans? You know, that group of people who who want that kind of authentic football experience. So, you know, there should be a lot more done to kind of allow those clubs to tap into their communities and and let Premier League clubs have the global fan bases and so on, but let EFL clubs um, tap into that a lot more. Um, and uh, and also kind of be a, a much kind of stronger part of the community. So again, no no kind of obvious way of thinking about this, but if you if clubs are serving their communities very well, why not reward them with an FA Cup tie of their choice? You know, so you're, I don't know, Yeovil, you've done loads of work for your community, you've engaged loads of kids, you know, been out of schools, you've kind of done work to, to support um, people in the local area. You get first pick. So you can either go to Man United away if you want and have, have a payday, or you can choose to play, I don't know, a non-league team at home because you actually just want to get further in the cup. Like, it's totally your call. And look, that's not going to be necessarily a big enough incentive in itself, but there's enough that can be done there. Um, and I know you've done a lot of kind of blue sky thinking as well on on what are some of the ways that we can get um, clubs to kind of grow their revenues and, and think about the way that they exist in different ways. Yeah, it's funny because we at sort of beginning or middle of lockdown, along with um, one of my colleagues, Johnny, um, and Dylan, the Sheridan's team, we tried to come up with a little bit of blue sky thinking on, and by the way, Omar, if there's particular questions you see, feel free to to take a look as well. We came up with just a couple of ideas for how best to, um, you know, potentially um, deal with the the types of financial issues that uh, lower league EFL clubs were were facing. Now, the the interesting thing I find uh, in sort of compare and contrast between your piece and my piece, yours being a lot better than mine for lots of different reasons, but mainly because what we were doing was thinking about the um, thinking about the outcomes rather than the inputs. So we were thinking is based on the current system, which was mm-hmm. probably flawed in some ways and also very good in others, what could be structurally done as a result? Whereas the, the, the thing that I find most fascinating about yours and Ben's piece is actually we need to think long and hard about a restructuring of the current status quo. So, for example, what we, what Johnny and I were thinking about was, you know, a transfer tax or mandatory sell-on, as you talk about as well, um, or you know, a particular, in, uh, um, a particular enshrined amount that Premier League clubs would have to spend in the lower leagues by way of credit, for example, or whatever else it might be. And I know Richard Masters was talking about that um, today to some degree, wasn't he? I think in the um, um, in the the, the committee uh, meetings that um, Greg Dyke was unfortunately involved in. Um, but um, I think the important thing there is um, what you mentioned structurally about, I'm not sure if you want to go to that now, but if you want to feel free to, which is you talking about how to um, make for a, a more regionalised uh, League One and Two, which would then potentially feed into um, you know more competitive and more trophy laden and a more exciting lower leagues. I know obviously this won't be for the traditionalists, far from it. Yeah, the reason why we can't start thinking about these type of things at a time of quite significant structural change, or at least yeah. change. So what what Ben and I were thinking about was well, what how do you um, how do you reduce this incentive to spend um, through sporting measures, for example, and um, one of the ways we were thinking about is what if it was to- what if football was totally random? 
then then there wouldn't be this incentive to spend right because it would just be i'll let my club run as it as it runs and then i'll let the results you know if we if we get lucky we get lucky we go up if we get unlucky there's not much i can do to to, to pull the levers and the challenge with this you know huge um 46 game you know 49 game with playoff season for bfl teams is that there is an incentive just to spend more money to because over the course of 46 games you've got a better chance of finishing higher whereas cup competitions no one no one spends loads of money thinking that they're going to win the fa cup off, off the spend spending loads of money right you, you think oh the cup if i get drawn at city away then i'll get drawn at city away i can't really do much about it um so yeah, one of the ideas we came up with was a much more kind of regionalized, more random competition format with shorter group stages. Because again, a short group stage means that there's fewer games. If you get a couple of bad results, then you then you end up going into a, a relegation tier as opposed to a promotion tier. Uh, playoffs that that encourage a lot more teams and therefore a, a more knockout based um, approach. And then the other piece as well is that regionalization tends to happen quite much higher up in other countries than it does in, in England. So in England, the first regional tier is the sixth tier. In Germany, it's fourth. In France, it's third. In Italy, it's third. In Spain, it's third, I think. Uh, I think I got that right. Um, and so one of the reasons you have regional tiers in, in other countries is just simply to reduce costs. Um, because if you're, you know, if Carlisle are playing, uh, I don't know, uh, Plymouth, um, then, you know, that, that's a long, long journey for for the club oh, yeah. associated with it um for the fans as well um you know away fans again are probably one of the most important parts of english football culture and if you know away fans are having to do what well, i mean that trip i don't even know i mean that's probably like a 15 hour round trip or something like that by uh, by road you know you're just not going to get the the traveling support whereas if clubs are much more locally focused you focus on derbies you focus on kind of uh, matches that have significance to, to local fans and and there's a lot uh, a lot of value on that no i think that's a really interesting one and so uh, yeah maybe we can just start taking a few questions because yeah. some good ones that have come in omar can you can you scroll at all or do you want me to be no, able- i've seen it i can't but i can see a couple um so one of these what would you guys recommend as possible reforms to ffp uh, and profit, profit and sustainability regulations in order to improve cash control they're better uh, club governance which yeah it's like they're you know earlier on i was kind of advocating i guess a version of ffp in in efl in that it's linked to revenue um but there's a lot of criticisms of ffp as well because in being linked to revenue you're to a degree linking or tying in the status quo um so i understand understand that um but i think ultimately you need to create environments where clubs have the ability to grow their revenues um, and therefore have a cap that's linked to that. I think hard caps um, just totally diminish the incentive to invest in stadia, invest in academy, invest in um, you know areas that are potentially revenue generating for the club in the long term. There's a few bits also on there that I've seen working with various clients, reading the regulations and trying to understand and, and pick apart particular elements is you know, there's differences between all of these regulations. So, for example, in the Premier League, you can actually spend over a three-year period £105 million more than you earn if you put in extra amounts by way of escrow, bank guarantee, um, owner-guaranteed uh, owner amounts, for example. Whereas in the UEFA competitions, um, you know, it's down to £30 million over a three-year period, which is obviously pretty 
restrictive. Now, UEFA actually um, creates a bit more flex in the system by allowing types of compliance plans where clubs could go to UEFA and say, you know, we've got a new ownership group. We're thinking about spending on these amounts and our aim within three or four years is to come within the spending requirements and here's a pretty detailed conservative business plan. So there are definitely ways that different regulators have done it differently. And obviously, you know, we talk about um, uh, salary caps, not more so than in rugby, for example, which has been there for a significant amount of time, never mind um, uh, MLS in lots of different ways, which is, you know, tons of regulations on how uh, clubs can control salary costs. There can be luxury tax, there can be players coming outside of the um, of the amounts, for etc. So um, I think there's a lot of tools already there. And I think the football can sometimes learn a lot from how other sports across lots of jurisdictions can um, can do things too. Yeah, definitely. Um, and we're seeing, obviously, we spoke about it a bit, well, we spoke about it at length last week with, with the American ownership model coming over. Um, you know, they American owners bring some things that a lot of fans don't like, but they do bring some things that a lot of fans should like, which is kind of sustainable business practices to to European football. So I think there's um, there's a lot of merit in, uh, in exploring those ideas. Um, there's a couple more questions from uh, Mazar. Hi, Mazar, how are you doing? Um, asked a couple of questions. Um, the the one um, that Mazar mentions is: Does a hard cap mean the possibility of misrepresentation of facts for bigger entities will lead to that? Um, I'm not entirely sure what that means, but if, if, for example, because there's a specific hard cap and going over that means pretty significant regulatory, financial, sporting consequences, then you only need to look to Saracens, for example, in rugby, of what what happened when they were potentially or were um, paying players very big commercial salaries or um, effectively partnering with players on particular investments. And that was seen as um, a way to circumvent um, the cap. And as a result of that, um, Saracens obviously through another disciplinary um, um, a case of disciplinary matter actually were then relegated accordingly. So uh, the, the interesting thing over the next few years, as we've seen with UEFA FFP, um, where some would have argued particular sanctions hasn't been as um, strongly um, meted out by way of bans or otherwise, um, is how the enforcement regime will actually um, work. And that's obviously something to think about. You know, whenever a regulatory framework is in place, you sometimes you're only as good as your enforcement mechanisms and I think that's obviously leads to incentive or disincentive to to spend or not spend really yeah there's it's the enforcement piece is really interesting because you would think like with with some of the the financial control measures that we have in the championship for example it would disincentivize um you know overspending um because there's there's sporting and financial punishments that come with it and yet we still see clubs breach the regulations uh, and so you end up in this perverse scenario where you know owners are happy to breach regulations and they end up getting points deductions and fines and maybe getting relegated the value of their club collapses and sh- you would think that'd be surely disincentive you know to just you know incentive to stay within the regulations but it just hasn't seemed to be the case so there almost needs to be as you say a reimagination or a, re- a, a, a proper thinking about the approach around enforcement and what what is actually good for the club, good for the league, good for owners, whilst also disincentivizing you know, bad behaviors. Yeah. 
Um, we're coming up to a couple of minutes to go, Mar, but there's one actually question from um, Olivier who's actually asked quite an interesting one, which is if you implement a salary cap, it means the clubs would make higher revenues. I think what it means is potentially higher profits mm. or less, lo less losses. Um, how can you make sure the money goes back to the club and not into the pocket of the owner? It's an interesting way to frame the question is the truth, bearing in mind that at least historically in European football and English football particularly, clubs have historically made losses in the vast majority of cases, only a few outliers to that general rule. Um, and with the onset of FFP, the onset of cost control measures as well, that had generally gone from big loss-making entities to relative break-even. It's yeah. gone out slightly in the last season or so where a couple more clubs have potentially made losses. But, um, you know, ultimately, I think it's the other side of the coin, which is if in years gone by, fans um, obviously want their owners and ownership groups to spend, but not necessarily at the cost of going into administration and possibly going out of business like we've unfortunately um, seen. So if there was a toss-up between um, potentially making profit and making burning through significant losses, I know what probably a lot of fans would like, would prefer, who have certainly been burned by that. But at the same time, the question sometimes is whether owners take dividends, whether they're taking money out by way of other means, not necessarily by just making profit every season or otherwise. Yeah, I guess I guess the ultimate punishment is that if those profits aren't reinvested in the team, then you'd like to think that the team is punished from a sporting perspective, i.e. they're relegated. Um, and that that's the kind of tension you've you've got to kind of balance. You know, in US sports, that's probably a criticism of ownership groups, right, is that they you actually don't have to do that much to, to make, earn a, uh, you know, make a profit and and because the, the cost controls are there and it's all it's all kind of sitting within this tight ecosystem hopefully you know european football presents those um those checks and balances in that there is a, a real kind of meritocratic meritocratic approach to to deciding which which teams are spending and investing their money well no really good well we're almost at half past um thanks for a bit, well quickly any other questions that you saw there omar that was particularly no no um no they're, they're, they're all good but uh, i think we ticked off the main ones no, it's excellent. So yeah, we've done. I say I can. I can say we're excellent, but I, th I know you were excellent. I don't want to speak for anyone else. But um, um, really enjoyed that session um, as usual. So for everyone watching, um, any particular topics that you'd like us to discuss, we're completely open. Um, we you know we talk about it in a few days leading up. But if there's stuff, please feel free to contact us um, via Twitter, via email, via our social media channels, etc. And just ask you know for particular things for discussion and. We'd love to get a bit of input and feedback on um, uh, on stuff more generally. But as usual, thank you very much for joining us. Um, the second edition will be um, on uh, YouTube really soon. Um, we'll post it. We're also going to be doing a podcast as well, which will go live hopefully soon as well. And um, see everybody next week, Tuesday, 7 p.m. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website danielg.com forward slash blogs please do subscribe to the Dundee football podcast like share and tag me if you like the content if not my voice you'll probably also like my book Dundee an insider's guide to football contracts multi-million pound transfers and premier league big business 
a bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally, and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.